Hey, good morning, you guys. Good morning, everybody. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, we are continuing our series in um, Tell Me a Story. Everybody say, Tell Me a Story. And we have been looking at this passage in Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. It's the parable of the vineyard workers. And for those of you who have not been with us, um, I will review the scripture if you can follow along, if you have a Bible or an app, um, but the scripture will be up on the screen. For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. Some people were looking for work. A landowner went out and found them. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard at noon and again at three o'clock. He did the same thing. So we see, right, everyone, we, we, we see a landowner, we see some workers, these are, these are people who were looking for work, they were standing around looking for work, early in the morning the, 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 the landowner went to grab a few, and then he did that several times throughout the day, we see. At 5 o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw some more people standing around, he asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us, say because no one hired us. The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. Say somebody say, uh-oh. The foreman lines them up. He starts with the last people who came at what time? Five. And how long had the people earlier in the day? What time did they come? Around nine. Lined them up, started paying the last workers first. And look what happens. When, they, um, uh, when those hired at 5 o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more. Look at somebody and say, don't assume. They assumed they would receive more. But they, too, were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this worker, this, I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? So those who are last now will be first, and those who are first will be last. Amen. So I got a confession to you guys. I owe J.P. Morgan Chase Bank $104,000 because of a dude named Chill Will. Now, first things first, you should never trust a man named Chill Will. Um, that should have been evident. Uh, and secondly, I probably can't put it all on him why I owe Chase Bank uh, $104,000. I don't owe him $104,000 because I have a gambling problem or anything like that. 
Uh, it's because I bought an apartment about seven years ago. Now, seven years ago, uh, I thought it was a good idea, but it was probably one of the worst financial decisions I I've made, and not a week goes by right now where I don't uh, look at to my wife and say, yo, why in the world did I buy this apartment? See, from the hassles of trying to rent it out, the hassles of trying to sell it now, I kick myself every single day wondering why in the world did I buy it, and I can actually trace back why I bought this apartment to one fateful day. See, uh, I was going to one of my friend's houses, uh, my boy Chill Will. So I walked in his crib, he invited me over, and I walked into the apartment, and as soon as I, as I walked in, I heard the angelic music of a huge living room uh, staring me right in the face. And I looked at Chill Will, and I was like, yo, like, do you rent this? And he's like, nah, man, I bought it. And immediately, uh, I turned green with envy. See, me and Chill Will, we went to high school at the same time. We went to college at the same time, and I figured that since Chill Will bought an apartment, it's a great idea for me to buy an apartment. Now, there's so much things I didn't know at the time, but certainly I can trace back the decision that I made to buy my apartment to that one day, going to Chill Will's house. Now, I know all of us cannot identify with apartment envy, right? I went to my friend's house last night. They got an outdoor space in the backyard with a grill, and the whole way home, I was like, but man, I ain't got no backyard. Now, the reason I bought that apartment was because I fell into a trap that I like to call the comparison trap. And Jesus knew that it was all too easy and all too common for us to fall into the comparison trap, where you and I would submit the direction of our lives, uh, not based off of what we should do uh, internally that we know, not based on what, what God would have us to do, but we base it off of the direction of our life based on what other people are doing. And Jesus knew that it was super easy for you and I to fall into the comparison trap, so he told us stories. Now, whenever Jesus wanted to get someone's attention, what he would do is he wouldn't, you know, pull out the, the whiteboard and start drawing up a lecture. Jesus would tell a story to get somebody's attention. And I believe that if Jesus were walking around, he would scream this at us because he really wants us uh, to, to focus in on this. See, Jesus doesn't want us falling into the comparison trap. Jesus uh, came to tell uh, these stories, and, and there's three main things that Jesus does in these stories and uh, what he sought to accomplish. And the first thing is he wanted to show us who God was. And secondly, as a result of who God was, who we are. And as a result of who we are, what we should do as a result. See, most of us, uh, we can get it backwards sometimes, and we'll, we'll, we'll turn over the direction of our lives to what's going on at the moment, and we'll let the direction of our lives determine who we are. And then how we're doing, we let that determine how we see God. But Jesus came to do a complete 180 on that, to turn that around on its head. He wanted to show us who God is, who we are, and what we should do as a result, that the direction of our lives should not be based on what other people are doing. See, Jesus didn't want us taking our cues for the direction of our lives based on other people. So he tells the story of the parable and the workers. Uh, and these guys should have been content in getting a day's wages. They got something that they actually needed. Now, as a day laborer, there was no guarantee that you would ever work. Uh, and they got everything that they bargained for, everything that they needed. But the only reason they weren't happy with what they had was because they started comparing themselves to other people. Now, I don't know everybody in this room for sure, and I, I have a question for you, uh, and it's not just a question for church people, even if you're new to church or you're new to this whole thing called Christianity, I, I, I bet you this is going to resonate. And here's a question. What or who are you, you going to look to as your reference point to see if you're okay? Now, my hunch, even though I don't know you, is that everybody has something. So my question again is, what or who are you looking to to see whether or not you're doing okay? See, for me, it was chill will. 
And I started to decide that since Chill Will and I are in the same grade, and since Chill Will and I are around the same age, and since Chill Will bought an apartment, I need to buy an apartment. And here's where this gets super duper dangerous, right? We judge our lives based on oversimplified snapshots of what's going on. And we compare our mundane day-to-day -day lives based on somebody else's highlight reel. Now, in our day and age, uh, there's so much of our lives that we quantify in numbers. For some of us, it's how much money we're making. And we feel good or bad depending on how many zeros we have in our bank account. And actually, the most important thing about the zeros is, is that whether or not there's a number in front of the zero, because you can have like 600 zeros. <laughs> you got to have at least something in front. Right, it might not be your paycheck, but maybe it's, maybe it's the scale. Maybe I, you would have felt good about yourself until you started to compare yourself to what the doctor's chart said you should be weighing, or what other people weigh. And it's all around us. You have standardized tests, uh, SATs for our high school kids, uh, percentiles for your, for your children, that your third grade kid is in the 99th percentile and your friends is only in the 35th. Sorry for your friends, right? all over, and Amazon, and, and you know, we look at the stars and how much something has. Facebook, we, de we, we determine how funny our post was based on how many likes we get. We determine how, many, how important somebody is on Twitter based on their number of followers, or whether or not they have a blue check next to the name. Now, these things called metrics, we tend to reduce people, and we tend to reduce things, these huge concepts, down to an oversimplified snapshot. And guess what, brothers and sisters? That is extremely, extremely dangerous. And Jesus does not want you turning over the direction of your life based on a snapshot of what you think things should be like. And we tend to uh, judge things that way. Now, here's, here's one of the craziest, craziest things about the story with Chill Will. A couple years later, after he bought the apartment, he moved to LA, and I wanted to take a free trip, so I went out there and stayed with him in his apartment. Uh, he was renting this time, he wisened up. And when I get out to LA, I said, hey man, how is your apartment in New Rochelle? First thing he says, yo, you have no idea how much I hate that stupid apartment. <laughs> he was underwater about $50,000 already. So that apartment was worth $50,000 less than he paid for it. And the single greatest financial concern he had was the decision he made to buy his, department, his apartment. And here I was, basing myself, basing my direction, my decisions, based off a of chill will, and he didn't even like his own apartment. See, what, what happens when we uh, judge things in an oversimplified snapshot? Now, here, here's one of the craziest things about the story that Jesus told. Out of all of the types of employees that Jesus could have used as examples, he intentionally used day laborers. Now, why did Jesus use day laborers? He used day laborers in this, in this thing. We see it in verses 1 and 2 of the story of Matthew 20. Uh, he used day laborers because day laborers had no idea what was going on with the business. A day laborer would come one day and could never conceivably come back. They didn't know the landowner. They didn't know the other employees. They didn't know the culture of the business. They didn't know the history of how the, the, the vineyard got started. They didn't know anything. All they knew was a snapshot of what they saw in that one moment. And Jesus used this on purpose to warn us, to, to, to plead with us, to don't, listen, don't, don't compare your day-to-day your -day life with somebody else's highlight reel, because you do not know. See, for all those day laborers could have known, maybe the landowner gave them extra money, because maybe when he didn't have anything, they helped him when he was in a time of need, and maybe he wanted to pay him back. But regardless of whatever was going on, the day laborers had no idea what was going on. And the same reason that, you know, it was a huge mistake for me to buy that apartment, 
and I was comparing myself to Chillwell, and guess what? I had no idea what was really going on beneath the surface. See, there's absolutely no win in comparison, and that's mainly because we truly do not know. See, most of the times we're making judgments, we're making decisions, we're making calls based on what we think we know, and we have no idea. So this is what I want us to do. Actually, I want to invite my friend uh, to the stage, Chloe McKenzie. She's going to come and tell us a little bit of her story. Uh, give her a round of applause as she comes out. Now, I'm, I'm not going to spill the beans on Chloe's story, but uh, her, her, her story and her life is a really good example on why we shouldn't just judge a book by its cover, why we shouldn't just pretend like uh, we can uh, judge something based on an oversimplified snapshot. So give Chloe one more round of applause. Hey, guys. Um, one of my favorite writers, Brene Brown, often says, our culture is allergic to vulnerability. For a long time, I was completely allergic to a vulnerability. And I think that it's safe to say that the church might even be more allergic to vulnerability. We talk a lot about humbling ourselves, about the beauty of being broken, about grace that heals, about coming to the cross with all of our wounds, but we're all scared to be broken in front of other people and hold out our past in our hands for everyone around us to see when everyone else in the pew next to us or the squeaky auditorium seat seems to be hashtag blessed, hashtag grateful, hashtag walking in the light, hashtag slain, anything. And even if they're all, they're all broken, it all seems to be so glamorous. The socially acceptable parts of us, we love to share, but the parts underneath, not so much. Vulnerability is really uncomfortable. So I thank you for being with me today and have the, co the courage to listen in vulnerability. It takes courage just to sit there and listen. So we've been talking about comparison, as Jordan says. We all do it. We're in a world of s saturated with shrines to ourselves, a.k.a. your Facebook profile that you create for yourself, your Instagram. I will verify, though, I do have the cutest cats in the world. Nobody can compare to that. <laughs> Everyone seems like they ate glitter for breakfast, or maybe, as Jordan would say, have unicorn guacamole in their chipotle. I fit that reference in there. <laughs> But I'm here to tell you, I love Beyonce. Sometimes I even think I'm Sasha Fierce, but, yes I am, but I would never actually want to be living her life. You don't see what's underneath, and we all have a story. So instead of doing the comparing from a young age, I was the girl that everyone compared themselves to. I was a straight-A student, a classical ballet dancer, a well-behaved preacher's daughter, a good friend. I didn't have as cool of sneaker game as Jordan, but I did have really cool shoes, and I do have them on today. And I had a really awesome fuchsia pink stripe in my hair. Seemed like I had it all together. I would constantly hear, God, you're so talented. Your life is so great. You're such a good girl. I love your outfits. Do you do anything wrong? The more I was told I was perfect, the more perfect I wanted to be. So I started struggling with anxiety and clinical depression at the age of about six years old. 
it finally got bad enough when I was eight years old that I entered counseling. As I got older and understood my faith more, I began to get confused because when I was nervous, I would only hear, be anxious for nothing, pray more, I'll pray for you, and the prayers weren't working. And I was confused. We didn't have the articles circulating now about depression so beautifully uh, related to Robin Williams, to Whitney Houston. We didn't have any of that. And I was confused as to how it rubbed up against my faith and how the two played um, together. You see, mental illness is in my DNA as much as my faith and my passion are. My grandmother had bipolar disorder. I have substance abuse on both sides severely. And my dad's brother committed suicide a month after I was born. It was in me. It's a part of me. It's a part of my faith. And maybe if my friends really knew that, what's all was underneath, they wouldn't have compared to themselves to me so closely. So I was a ballet dancer, started when I was two. My career was supposed to start at 17 years old. Instead, at 17 years old, it ended due to a hip adductor tear. I immediately fell into the deepest depression I've ever been in my entire life. And the anxiety and depression were so, so strong, I had no idea what to do until somehow I found something that masked the pain most completely. For many years of my life, I called the lost years. I was under the shell of anorexia. Now, that's not what you think. The tabloids are glorified diets. That's what they depict. It doesn't have a look. It doesn't look like anything. But anorexia, the mental disease, leads to malnutrition, which slows down your heart rate, causes your bones to decay, your organs start eating away at themselves, you can't sleep at night, and you can't focus on anything. So for many years, this was my life. It worked. I was numb completely. I went off to college, and after three semesters, something, I'll call it God, I'll call it grace, told me to come home, that I was too sick. So I came home, but I was still really sick and obsessively running. Um, my grandmother died while I was at home. On my way back from her funeral, um, I was in the car and started getting a pain in my heart and all the way down my left side of my arm. And the disease was too strong to say anything, but I knew I was having a mini heart, heart attack. For 24 hours, I lived with that, yes, it's medically possible, um, and never said anything. I thought that was going to be my last night, along with many other nights following that. A month after that, I was in a bike accident with my dad. We were out road biking, and I was too dizzy and too confused to be able to control the bike. Strong wind blew. I went into the back of his tire, went over onto the side of the road, and was knocked out for 20 minutes, had a seizure, and he thought I was dead. I came back, woke up with, in an ambulance, had three staples in my head, and broke my collarbone, and I still didn't wake up. A month after that, I was laying in bed, too weak to get up. I had just gotten home to take a nap because I was really tired after work, and I could open my eyes. I couldn't move. I could hardly speak, and I laid there for hours until my mom came home. I was able to call her upstairs, and I just uttered the words to her, 
I think I need help. Now, you would think, after I said that, at least I thought, that I was going to go zero to 100 real quick. Yeah, I might fit that in there. <laughs> and that is so far from the truth. Um, recovery from eating disorders, research says, takes about seven to 10 years, if ever. I would like to believe, if ever, but seven to, year, to 10 years is a long time. So we see, we read the Bible, and we see Jesus' miracles, and he says, go wash your face in the mud. You are healed, You're bl you were blind, and now you see. I thought that's what was going to happen. But dealing with issues of the mind and heart, healing is not that straightforward. Anorexia takes the entire body captive. I hardly knew my favorite color, my movie, who my friends were. Finally, I was sitting in church about a few months after I had entered recovery, really, really confused, completely destroyed, and probably more broken than ever, because I felt like I was crawling up a hundred-foot ca cave. And my dad was speaking about Ezekiel 37, 5 through 10. I think they're going to show it up there if you want to write it down. But it's all about the Valley of Dry Bones. And it's the first reference in scripture where it says this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and so forth. It wasn't one thing, and you're done. And that really started to open my eyes to, okay, maybe this is possible. First the bones, then the ligaments, the tendons, and finally the breath of life enters you. So it was going to be a long journey. My bones have been dry, but somehow I've been given a second chance after being so close to death. Recovery is the hardest thing I've ever done and probably the hardest thing that I ever will face in my entire life. I've had to learn how to live again and how to deal with the anxiety and depression that are still there because the eating disorder was just a numbing mechanism as anything, as alcohol, as smoking, as any addiction. It's still there, and I've had to face, face it face-to-face. Some days it feels like just a shadow. Other days I feel like I'm completely failing again. I cannot say that I'm completely healed, nor will I say that I have the same faith that I did when I started or even when I was in high school. It shouldn't be the same. It's filled with more questions because of what I have lived, but I also have a deeper compassion for addiction, for people who feel stuck, for people who tr feel trapped by their own lives, for people who doubt who have given up on faith, who want to be numb, who don't want to feel, who feel misunderstood, and for people hurting beyond words. A few months ago, Jordan spoke about a counseling service here, and I immediately jumped at, like, I want to share my story, because I was always told to pray. Yes, you should pray. But medication and counseling is also very much needed. The ultimate healer is the Father, but he puts all of these things into place in the process along our way for a reason, and there is no shame in reaching out for help. I will be with my counselor until the day I'm in the tomb. <laughs> I want to thank you for being such a warm and inviting congregation and honest. Um, me and my husband, Josiah, have um, just loved this faith community, and we are just always inspired that if we open up in vulnerability. It creates this space around us for others to step into. 
It's not a hard shield. It is the soft space for others to step into and share their story with us so that we can share understanding and the Father can share grace. I'll leave you with this quote from Anne Lamont, one of my favorite authors. It says, I do not understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are and does not leave us where it found us. Come on, you can give her one more clap. Give it up for Chloe. Yeah, we appreciate, we appreciate Chloe. Hey, we want to do something. Uh, join us as we pray for her. If you could just extend your hand forward just so we can create the atmosphere and continue to pray. God, thank you for Chloe and the work that you are doing in and through her. God, thank you that she has been through the fire and she does not smell like ashes. God, that she has uh, arose from the, from the fire, Lord God, smelling and looking just as a kingdom's kid. God, we are amazed by your work and your handiwork and the way you do it. And God, although we don't know the process and we don't know every step of the way, Lord God. Trusting you in the midst of it uh, has shown and proven to be all we need. God, thank you for Chloe and the work that she will do and thousands of others who need to hear this story. God, thank you that this is not just a gender-specific story either, oh, Father, that this pertains to all of us, uh, that we are all, uh, there is something in all of us, Lord God, that we can bring to you and that we can leave at your footstool, Lord God, to be changed and, and made anew. God, uh, we appreciate how your Holy Spirit will continue uh, to allow Chloe's story to move us throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, one, one more time for Chloe. And think about it, right? Think about her friends uh, back in the day and the, and the kids she grew up with as they were looking at her. Just imagine how they were comparing themselves. Just imagine how much of the story they didn't know. Just imagine how much of the, how many times she laid in the bed crying and thinking life was over and feeling like, I love how she said, the disease was so strong she couldn't even ask for help. Just imagine the people comparing themselves to her and, and what they would have thought if they would have saw the story. Man, clearly... We can't know the story of everyone, only God does. And like Jordan said, we, we see the highlights and we see the posts and the danger is to compare ourselves to that. So I suppose, I'm sure by now we all get it, right? We all get it, right? Comparison becomes poison that sits in our spiritual veins and slowly erodes the fruit that God seeks to craft in our hearts. In other words, comparison sucks. No, literally, literally, comparison sucks. It sucks the abundance out of the life God truly has for you and I. It is a subtle perspective that discolors our eyes and is often hard to get rid of. It creates a stain that needs washing, and often we need help in discovering where it exists within us. As a result, I have concluded that comparison does two major things. 
that I believe we have to guard against. Comparison steals our joy and discolors our perspective of God. I'm going to say that again. Comparison steals our joy and it discolors our perspective of God. One more time. Comparison steals our joy and it discolors our perspective of God. See, comparison steals our joy. Our joy. Let's look at the story again. The day workers woke up with uncertainty. Raise your hand if you ever woke up with some sort of uncertainty. Right? For these people, daily life was uncertain. Right? How they were going to get money, how they were going to uh, pay for um, that formula that they needed to get. You know, I'm modernizing it a little bit, Shawana. You know, they probably didn't have formula back then. But they had something for babies to drink, right? They probably didn't know how they were going to pay rent. They didn't know what the end of the day was actually going to look like. So uncertainty was probably their middle name. They didn't know if they would get paid. And if somehow they had hope that they would get paid, they definitely didn't know where or when it was going to come. When they, when they got hired, I'm absolutely sure they were elated. When they get to work, they're probably talking with one another, talking about the things that they're going to do with their wages. They're probably really, really excited, really engulfed in this process. Yo, man, listen, I am about to receive a day's wage. Scripture does not tell us exactly what the interaction was like with, with those workers when they were hired early in the morning. But I'm absolutely positive that one thing they had was joy. I'm absolutely positive that one thing they had, knowing that they will finally get a full day's wage, I'm absolutely positive they had joy. So what happened? If they had joy when they began, what happened? When they compared their situation to the workers who were hired later in the day, the joy was gone. See what I mean? It was sucked away. It was depleted and almost non-existent by the end of the day. Renaissance. Comparison robs us of the joy we should have for the things we already have. If comparison was a person, it would be a thief. I remember hearing a principle that really changed my work ethic and, and my perspective as a young man. And the principle was this. It's not what you have. It's what you do with what you have. It's not what you have, it's what you do what you have, with what you have. See, all too often, we take the focus off what we have, and we focus on what we don't have. So many times, you could ask me, um, how's my day, or, or how did things go, and I'm probably going to tell you about the things that I didn't get done or the things that didn't happen. A- anybody can identify with that? I'm probably going to speak more about what didn't happen, what I wanted to happen, what should have happened, what could have happened as opposed to what did. And, and even if we do focus on, sometimes we focus on what hasn't happened, right? And a lot of times we focus on what other people have and what other people are doing. And that too is similar to focusing on what we don't have. And I believe it's there in that moment where the joy for what we actually do is put in a bag and snuck out of the back door of our hearts. 
Comparison and envy come in, and their focus is to find joy as quick as they can, steal it, and get out as quick as they can. See, any Ocean's 11's fans or Ocean's, Ocean's 12 fans in here, right? If you substitute uh, Brad Pitt and George Clooney for uh, comparison and envy, if you substitute Las Vegas or wherever the greatest heist is going to happen for your heart, if you substitute a large chunk of cash for joy, you will see that comparison and envy, their strategy is to be unnoticed but be as deadly as possible. Comparison steals our joy. And secondly, it discolors our perspective of God. If we peek back into the story, here's another thing I'm sure of. I'm sure the day workers, um, when they realized they were getting uh, a full day's wage, they deemed or perceived the landowner as gracious. I guarantee you, I guarantee you when they walked in the first day and they made the agreement at, at 858, Right? They, start, they had to work at nine, so I'm sure the landowner was pretty strict on time, unlike me, right? I was, I'd have probably been there a little late. But I'm sure at 8.58, when they were go, going over the terms, they were like, okay, you do this work full day, you're going to get a full day's wage. And I'm sure at that point, they were like, yo, this landowner is dope. That's my dude. I, yo, I'm about to get paid. I'm going to take wifey out to the new Park 112, like... Man, I got a whole day's wage. I guarantee you their perspective of the landowner was that he was fair and he was just. And see, I I think all too often when we think about denarius, right, we think about minimum wage. Well, let me speak for myself. I know when I read this story, initially I began to think that, okay, these day workers were working for like minimum wage. But that's actually not true, right? We're talking kind of Chick-fil-A pay scale, right? Anybody know Chick-fil-A? doesn't, they don't pay anyone less than $10 an hour, right? McDonald's and Burger King, I mean, I'm sure it's less than $10 an hour. I'm almost sure. But, but we are talking a full day's wage, not minimum wage, but a full day's wage. So if you remember, the landowner confronts them after the foreman begins the payment process and says, is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? So I ask us, has our perspective of God been discolored because we have witnessed him being kind to others? It was not until everyone was getting paid that the workers said, those people worked only an hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. Their perspective was discolored because they compared what the landowner did with them to what the landowner did with those who came at 5 p.m. Are you comparing? Has the lens through which you see God been discolored because your friend got a promotion and you're still stuck at the whack job that you hate? Have you been praying with a single friend for a relationship or have you been praying with a friend for a job or an opportunity and they received it before you? Somebody say amen. Somebody say amen. We talking facts right now. Has that ever happened? Absolutely. And at that point, we begin to deem God and his work as unfair. Only because of the trap of, the trap of comparison. 
My charge to us today is simply stop comparing. There's no value in it. Stop comparing. It steals our joy and discolors our perspective of God. So what do we do with this message? Here's what I want us to do. All right. Tonight, I want you all to go home and I want you to follow these steps. All right. First, step number one. All right. Everybody hold up one finger. Step number one. Step number one. I want you to write out this scripture, Hebrews 13.5. It says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And you can substitute money in and out of there, right? You can put money. You can put the metrics that we talked about. You can put anything in there. Be content with what you have. It's not what you have. It's what you do with what you have. I want you to write that scripture out on the paper. And then on the top, I want you to put these words, with me. Put these words, with me. In the gospel account in Matthew, it talks about how Jesus' name is Emmanuel, God with us. Third step, I want you to list all the times you have seen God graciously bless you. I want you to make a list. Listen, Renaissance, I'm not talking, this is not just some hokey-dokey lesson. I, I mean, I'm really talking spiritual development for those of us who, who feel like, you know what, man, I, I'm just trying out Christianity. I'm not sure where I stand with God, and, and we're on different parts of our journey, and that's completely okay. But I would imagine that God has done something in each and every one of our lives if we just open our eyes and take a look. I would challenge you if you were sitting there today like, look, God hasn't blessed me and this, it's always been unfair. I would challenge you to take that lens off and put on a new one and ask God to show you, okay, God, if you have, let me see. And whatever comes to mind, I want you to write it down. And those of us who know, those of us who have seen Red Seas parted, those of us who have been in situations and we know nothing else was going to happen until God showed up, if you know that, I want you to write down every time that has happened. In Joshua, um, God tells them to, to there's, a, there's a sea that's parted again, and, jo- and, and God tells Joshua, tell all the elders, tell the people to go grab a stone. And take the stone from the middle of the Red Sea and hold on to it. It's going to be a memorial. And, and they were like, why? Why should we do this? Why are we going to hold on to this stone? Ah, it's kind of ugly. It's not going to be decorative. It's going to mess up my apartment. Why would I do that? He says, this is why. Because the generations after you are going to ask about the God of the universe. And you're going to have a reference point to tell them something true. And I believe God is saying too many of us. Don't keep the memorials fresh in our mind, so we tend to compare. And if we keep them fresh, if we keep them at the top of our hearts and our minds each and every day, I guarantee you we will continue to fix our eyes on Jesus, which ultimately is the cure to comparison. Renaissance, let's make a declaration. All right? Everybody put your fist in the air. I mean, this is kind of spooky. Put your fist in the air, J.O. Come on. All right. Say this with me. Lord, we declare that comparison will not steal our joy and we will not let it discolor our perspective of you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Give it up. <clears throat> Man, I'm so grateful for this, the, the multiple voices in our community, Chloe and Aswan, and just everybody that uh, can, continues to contribute to what's going on. I, I want to end us today with, with the question that we asked earlier. I want to circle us back, right? Who or what are we going to look to, are you going to look to, as your reference point to see whether or not you're doing okay? Who or what are you going to look to this week, this month, this year? Who or what are you going to look to as your reference point to see whether or not you're okay? And I promise you, if we look to the left or to the right, if we look at other people and what they're doing, especially because we don't know the whole story, we're going to fall into the comparison trap. And it's going to steal our joy, and it's going to discolor our perspective of God. So Jesus came to show us who God is, and as a result, Jesus came to show us who we are. And here's what I think Jesus wanted to get at in the story. Uh, one of the things that I, I kind of found even in discussing this this week at my community group is most of us immediately put our pl ourselves in the place of the people that got there first, right? And as soon as we read the story, we think, oh, yeah, I would be really angry if I got there at 5 a.m., somebody else got there at 5 p.m., and I worked all day, and they, we got the same thing. But I don't think the gospel message is that. I think what Jesus came to do is tell us a story for us to actually read it in a different lens, right? What if you were the one that got there at 5 p.m. and the landowner still took care of you? See, Scripture tells us a far different story than the one that we might tell ourselves. Scripture tells us that we're actually the ones that got there at 5 p.m. and the landowner was gracious. Scripture tells us we're the ones that got there late, and even though the landowner didn't have to do anything, he still did it. One of the most popular scriptures in all of the, in all of the, the Bible, even if you're not uh, somebody that's been to church a million times, I bet you you've heard John 3.16. And John 3.16 tells us basically a couple of things. It tells us that we were so sinful that Jesus had to die for us, right? But that's only half of the story. But the other half is we're so loved simultaneously that he wanted to die for us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. See, here's the thing we do when we're comparing ourselves, right? We're trying to figure out whether we actually matter to God. We're trying to figure out whether or not God actually is paying attention to our lives. We're trying to figure out whether or not God even knows what's going on in our story. We're trying to figure out if God is somebody that we can trust, somebody that we can actually follow and, and, and put our lives in his hands. And we fear. See, at the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. The problem is not what you have or what you don't have. I was watching this uh, documentary on HBO, The Jinx, uh, with this guy, you know, whatever his name is, he probably killed a bunch of people. But that's not the important part. The important part is this. He tell, Robert Durst, he tells a story, and in the beginning of the episode, he says, my entire life, I've had more money than I could ever spend, and it never made me happy. His entire life, more money than he could ever spend. His family owns so many real estate, so much real estate throughout the city. Uh, and we would look and say, oh, money would make me happy. Trust me, it's not what you have or don't have that's going to make you happy. It's not having more money. It's not having a smaller uh, dress size. It's not having a bigger apartment. It's not having any of these things that we would want to make us feel significant. You are eternally significant because we matter to God. And if we, took our, if we take our cues from anything else, from what other people have, from what we have, if we take our minds and take our eyes off of that, we're going to set ourselves up to fall directly into the comparison trap. See, Jesus would have us to look to the cross. See, the cross is that statement that God loves us, God cares for us, 
He has not forgotten about you. You matter to him. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to dress yourself up in the, in the best of clothes. You matter to God. You. Yes, I know you don't have everything you want, and I know there's things that you feel like you need that you don't have right now, but trust me, you matter to God. And one thing I love about Chloe's story is uh, that she trusts the process now. And I, and I would challenge us to trust the process for our own lives. Not everybody's process looks the same, right? Not everybody's process looks the same, but God has us all. He hasn't left you. Now, I would certainly be remiss if I didn't, if I didn't end here uh, with, a, with a very direct uh, charge to you. We have extremely, extremely affordable counseling. And whatever you can afford, that's what your price will be. And for some of us in here, you thought to yourself that I would never do counseling. It's not for me. I don't need it. I'm, what I need to sit around and talk to somebody for? Listen, a lot of us are in a place where we feel trapped, where you haven't progressed. You haven't gone forward. You haven't gotten to the place that you want to get to. And guess what? We're going to still keep praying with you. We're going to still keep praying and fasting and believing that God can do anything and everything in an instant. But until that happens, I would challenge you and I would charge you to consider going to counseling. Now, the phone number is on the connection card. If you gave the connection card away already, there's more at the information desk. Um, uh, on, on, Jess will be out there on, on the outside after service. And the phone number is there. To, you can go out on our website, also renaissancenyc.com. Uh, you can find it there, her information there. Everything that you speak about with her is confidential. Everything, 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 everything is confidential. And some of us, it would be, we'd be crazy if we didn't talk about it. Now, for me personally, I speak about this authoritatively because I've, you know, a lot of you guys know my story. Uh, I lost my late wife about four years ago. And for the last five years, I've been in counseling with a therapist, a Christian counselor who's been walking with me through life. And it felt a little funny at first, I won't lie. Uh, but now it's been one of the most life-giving things that I have in my life. And I promise you, it could be an amazing thing in your life also. So let me, let me, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for, uh, I thank you that you care about us. I thank you that we don't have to make more money for you to care about us. I thank you we don't have to dress better for you to care about us. I thank you that we don't have to lose more weight to, for you to care about us, that we don't have to be in a relationship. We don't have to have everything we need for you to care about us. Father, you care about us. God, help us to look to Jesus this week. Help us to look to the cross, God, as a sign, as, as a statement that you are screaming to us, that you love us, and that you care about us, and you are actively redeeming all things in our life. Bless us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.